Welcome to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast, the show that offers you tips and strategies to help speakers build the business of their dreams. Now, here's your host, 30-year industry veteran and business coach, Jane Atkinson. Welcome, everyone, to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about how to land and leverage a TEDx talk. My special guest today is Frank King. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you, Jane. And before you go any farther, I want to clear something up. Oh. I heard a phrase years ago, and I believe it is your wording. I think somebody was a student of yours, Mm -hmm. and the phrase is, pick a lane. And I've attributed that to you ever since. Is that, I think that is your. Been in my book and I got the phrase from Joe Calloway, who generously uh, loaned it to me for the wealthy speaker. And we have used it here in the halls of the wealthy speaker school now for many, many years because it makes sense to pick a lane. And so we're going to talk about your lane, but give me the today snapshot of your business model? What does your business look like today? I know you're a TEDx coach, but you also do other things. Tell me the big picture, and then we're going to take a step and go backwards. Okay. The What I do today, obviously, is I'm a TEDx coach, and I'm a professional speaker, and I speak on suicide prevention as a workplace and college health and safety issue. That is my lane, yeah. and I picked it in part because you suggested that, I mean, I'd heard that from you from him, years ago. I'm a slow learner, Jane. So 2018, January 1st, I thought from this point forward, I am simply a suicide prevention speaker. I have other speeches and if they want to pay me for them, or if I can toss it in as a breakout in the afternoon to give the meeting planner some additional, you know, like two slots for one speaking fee and one travel, I'll do that. Or I'll do stand-up comedy at the banquet or I'll auctioneer at the charity. But all I pitch all I do, my lane is suicide prevention speaking. And the reason I chose it, but besides you, is I looked around my town at the people who were most successful, trying to figure out what they had in common. One owns a body shop, one owns two radio stations. They're very successful. What's the common element? And I realized they do one thing and they do it extremely well. And they're no longer a commodity in those businesses. When someone looks for a body shop, they're not looking for any body shop. They're looking for Todd's. Auto body because yeah. he is he is no longer a commodity. They come looking for him. And that's what I tell my speaker coaching clients. Eventually, you want to be not a commodity on your topic in the speaking business. When they want somebody like you, they want you. They want and they you. come looking. And it's happened a couple of times. And because I picked the lane and because I've worked very hard to make that my lane, my brand. Right. And I took it a step farther. I also decided I needed to figure out who my ideal clients are. So my marketing wouldn't be spray and pray. Not everybody needs suicide prevention. So I picked half a dozen of the top 10 at-risk occupations for suicide. Construction, mining, excavation, fishing, farming, forestry, dentists, veterinarians, attorneys, and agriculture. And I picked six of those. And that's the only people, I only market to those six groups. It makes the sales process a lot simpler because if they contact me, I don't have to convince them that suicide prevention is a great idea. They already know that. that. All they're doing is trying to figure out which suicide prevention speaker they're going to pick. Which isn't a bad idea when you're thinking about who your markets. And we suggest, by the way, three markets, six, Mm -hmm. six, you know, you know how difficult it is to go really deep into any one industry. And so there's a lot of room to play in there. 
So that's why we kind of choose three. And some of our clients even choose one market, which I yes. think is fine. You could do suicide prevention for dentists or one of those groups that you mentioned if you wanted to, but I can see where going broad is important. Now we're diving into the business stuff, but I do want to do a little detour for a second here to talk about how you landed on this topic. You gave me a story to be in the Wealthy Speaker 3.0, and it's a very deep story. And you have a comedy background. And so I don't want to, I want to take this part of the story as with as much seriousness as we need to. And this is something that isn't, I have my, one of my best friends, her daughter has suicidal thoughts and tendencies frequently. Every time the phone rings, she doesn't know what she's going to get. And so I'm kind of like feeling this with you. And for anybody who's listening, please tell your story of how you landed here. Started comedy April 1st, 1984. My first open mic night, got on stage halfway through my set. I heard this inside my head, you're home. And I'd known I wanted to be a comedian since fourth grade. And so I decided I was going to be a professional comedian, had no idea how, but a year and a half later, said to my girlfriend, now my wife, 35 years, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian full-time. Do you want to come along? Figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. <laughs> and she goes, yes. So we were on the road together with no home for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. Wait, let me write that down. 2,629 2, nights. Whoa. Seven That's... years and change. And worked with Dennis Miller, Foxworthy, Ellen DeGeneres, Rosie, Steve Harvey, Adam Sandler, you know, back when they were just comics. And I did that until I got a job in radio in Raleigh uh, about seven, eight, I guess, 10 years later. And as most people in radio will tell you, there are two kinds of people in radio, people who have been fired and people who are going to be fired. I took a number one morning show and drove it to number six in 18 months. I didn't just drive it in the ground. I drove it in the middle of it. So by then, the comedy club boom busted. And I thought, well, I'm a clean comic. I could do corporate comedy, the rubber chicken circle, conferences. Every now and then, one of my aging comedian friend says, what's the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic? About five grand a night plus travel. <laughs> and and I, let me just put in a word for the rubber chicken circuit is typically free in our world, but you're talking about a different kind of rubber chicken circuit. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. You were getting paid. Okay. Oh, yes. Uh, five grand for 45 minutes. I mean, it was, um, and, and a meeting planner would say to me, wait a minute, we're paying you $5,000 for 45 minutes of just jokes. And I would say, look, you're not paying me for the 45 minutes of jokes I tell, you're paying me for the 45 minutes of jokes I don't tell. You're paying me so when I get on my job, you still have a job. <laughs> that resonates with meeting planners. Right. And, and you put a mic in a comic stand. Ooh. Okay. So I rode that horse until about 2007, eight recession hits. Bookings drop off 80%. Okay. We were, we had some negative cash flow, a house payment about $2,300 a month, just couldn't keep up. And so filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy, lost everything we worked for in 25 years. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like, literally. In my keynote, I say, spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger, wow. which gets a nervous laugh. I go, it's okay to laugh. That's, it was, and I think there. laughter is how we, you know, kind of lighten up a moment that is very, very serious in what, we, what you're talking about. Yes, there's a reason they call it comic relief, Jane. It's, uh, yeah. And there's a psychological principle. If you, if you have a piece of serious business, yeah. and then you'll follow with something, some comic relief, their brain is much better prepared for the next piece of serious business. Because, you know, 45 minutes of death and dying and suicide, whatever, is tough to take without yeah. something. 
Yes. It's got to have some balance to it so that people don't feel so just dark and heavy, right? Yes. And as a speaker, I like to move them from laughter to tears to laughter to tears. A woman in Iowa last June, after I did my keynote, came up and said, you made me laugh twice and cry once. I said, my work is done. Because <laughs> you know what they say, Jane. They may not remember what you say, but they will remember how you made them feel. And so I like to move the audience that way. What, what advice do you have to someone out there? And we won't go heavily down this path, but what advice do you have for someone who's out there who is going through some dark times right in this moment? I would first get a mental health evaluation. Just be evaluated. Find out if it is simple garden variety depression or is it the depressive state of bipolar disorder? What exactly is it borderline? And I would also have a physical because sometimes physical ailments present as mental health challenges. Interesting. Yeah, I had a friend here in town who was terribly depressed and come to find out after physical, his body wasn't metabolizing iron. So they put him on what they call a time-release iron supplement. Bingo. He's back to flying level. So I would do a mental health evaluation, a physical, just in case. If medication's indicated, I would take the doctor, whatever they suggested. However, only one-third of psychotropics on average work for everybody. So there's now a DNA cheek swab test. They take your DNA like Ancestry does, and they try to match your DNA with the antidepressant, let's say, that works best with your metabolism. So Mm -hmm. there's less of that lab rat you know go on doesn't work taper off go on doesn't work taper off it's a it's not perfect but it's a lot more accurate than just what the drug salesman told the physician (laughs) you know so and i would let people in your life know yeah anybody who you know love and trust let them know what you're going through and what kind of help you may need yes people with mental illness are often great actors. I have a Screen Actors Guild card for a reason. I did not come out as depressed and suicidal until I did my first TEDx, and I came out of the mental health closet on that stage as depressed and suicidal. My wife didn't even know. No. Well, we hide it. You know, we don't want to burden anybody. Uh, Not much you figure anybody else can do, but if they know what's happening and they know what's liable to happen. In the books, we I wrote a series of four books with two co-authors, and we compared the brain to an automobile engine. And it looks like a, it's for men, and it looks like an automobile owner's name. And in there, there's a metaphor. You know, if you're racing NASCAR, you're not going to wait until you roll into the pit to hire a pit crew. <laughs> you're going to have them standing by, you know, with the tires and the brakes and oil so that when you something goes wrong. You're ready to go. It's like buying a car. Every time I have a car, I have AAA because I know at some point. Huh. So that's kind of what your family, friends that you know, love, and trust need to know so that if it melts down. You know, how can they support you in that? But again, people with mental illness oftentimes are really shy because of the stigma. Yeah. Recrimination. So those people who is listening today, I think we'll put I'll have Monica put both the US and Canadian helplines for suicide prevention yep. and, and mental health awareness so that uh, there's at least a number here, but please, please, please reach out to somebody and know that there are people that care about you so yes and by the way that we have a new three digit number 988 for the suicide prevention lifeline is now 988 911 it's 988 yep i didn't know that is that all across america Uh uh-huh i did not know that okay so big that's big news to me here's another one for you okay Uh, they they discovered that younger people 
millennials and Gen Z are more forthcoming in text. So they created a suicide prevention text line. Text the word help to 741-741. That's really good. There'd be somebody roughly their age on the other end to text back. So good. Thank you. Thank Mm -hmm. you for providing those, Frank. One note for your friend whose daughter is struggling. Please. Yes. What? There's something in Suicide Island called burdensomeness. Many people who are thinking of suicide believe they are burdened and that the world, their family, and the world would be better off without them. It's irrational, but that's the way. I knew my wife would be better off without me because I had a million-dollar life insurance policy. She would be heartbroken, but no longer broke. So I would recommend that your friend every now and then, at odd moments, reassure her daughter this way. Honey, I know sometimes it probably crosses your mind that we would be better off without you. But in no uncertain terms. Would we ever be better off without you? That's really good. That's really good. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate mm-hmm. that very much. Okay. So, so now to our topic at hand. And well, I really did want to cover that. And apologies for those of you who showed up looking for TED Talk information. Today. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh... We do have that here for you right now. So. Well, and it dovetails into that, uh, Jane. The, after I came so close to killing myself, and I looked back at my family history, something called generational depression and suicide runs in my family. My grandmother, my great aunt, my mother, as I say in my keynote, more nuts in my family than in a squirrel poop. So, <laughs> And you're allowed to say that because, why are you allowed to say that, Frank? <laughs> because I'm living with two mental illnesses. One is major depressive disorder and the other is chronic suicidal ideation. In speaking and in comedy, you can make fun of any group to which you belong. Which you belong. So just yes. so you know where the lines are in the sand, everybody, we clarified that. Yes. Frank's story in the book. I'm like, I think this may offend some people. And you said, well, I'm one of them. So we made sure that um, I, I'm yep. allowed to say that because I'm one of them got included in the book. Okay. So, so I'm one of them. Yes. I've come close to dying by suicide. I meeting planners called me and said, look, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you five grand just to be funny. You've got to give us some content. You've got to teach our audience something. And I was at a loss. Yeah. And that was right in that time in when economic shift happened and all of a sudden shareholders and stakeholders were starting to demand ROI from their speakers. Yeah. And you got caught up in that because you were straight up humor. That was one of the first things cut. And that is why your business had a very difficult time. And that's why today it's no longer kind of as cool to be a straight up motivational speaker. People used to think that that was quite fluffy. You have to have some ROI in there. And now I think most people come at it from that, at least our students do, they come at it from that perspective. They are always thinking, how am I going to help somebody solve a problem or what's the return on investment for the buyer? So you figured out this was your ROI. Yes. However, I had no, I had always wanted to do that, make a living and a difference. From when I sold insurance and saw Zig and Brian Tracy and all those, I thought I could do that if I just had something to teach people. Yeah. So I hope you don't mind. I took your philosophy of pick a lane. And then I read Judy Carter's book, The Message of You. Love Judy. Turning your life into a money-making speaking career. And I went into the book thinking I got nothing. And she walks you through the process. And about halfway through, I thought, I got it. I've got a great story. 
if I could just get a certification in suicide prevention, you know, get trained, yeah. I could keynote on suicide prevention. And then the second hurdle was, how do I get meeting planners to believe after two and a half decades of stand-up that I can do something serious? And now you have to reteach your clients on how to think of you. Holy yep. So my wife said, how about a TED Talk? And I said famously, what's a TED Talk? And she <laughs> described it. And by chance that week, I got an email from a TEDx up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And they said, we would like you to apply. So I applied and I got it. And that was, and it's, you know, I'm talking about suicide prevention. And so that's a very serious topic. And I was able to prove to everybody that, and then by picking the lane of suicide prevention speaking and adding humor, I am the mental health comedian. It's kind of an odd combination, but because of the, element of comic relief and because i have lived experience i can joke about it or tell funny personal stories about it yeah and get away with it somebody said do you not get booked because you're a comic i said no the reverse is true yeah they want the humor the lived experience and of course the learning outcomes the objectives do you think where do you think we are on the mental health kind of wave. I feel like we're just at the very beginning of the wave and there's a lot more to come. I would say more so in the US than in Canada. I think in Canada we're a little bit further along. And you've been at you've done TEDx at TED Talks in Vancouver, so perhaps you might have some insight on that. Well, the I do colleges as well as corporate. Mm-hmm. And the last study I saw said that a full 60% of college students were self-report anxiety and comorbidities and 40% of high school students. And that's double what it was 10 years ago. So it's getting worse. My last TED talk, my seventh one was digital media addiction, smartphone, social media, and suicide. Because I believe there's a, it may not be a correlation or causation, but there is a connection. A hundred percent. Yes. Yep. So the probably amplified that for all those students, especially, don't you think? Yes. Yes, because you're isolated. Yeah. On top of everything else. Yeah, isolated. So you're staring, you're staring at your your phone screen or your computer screen far more. And so the good news is that the suicide rate in the U.S. went down 1.5 percent during the pandemic. Oh. They think it's because an extra million people reached out to the suicide prevention lifeline. Maybe they finally figured out that look, I need help. The only groups that had an increase were teenagers and college students. Well, for those of you who are dealing with it directly in your families or personally, uh, my heart absolutely goes out to you. COVID has been so difficult and I don't feel like we're over, you know, the whole thing yet. There's still so much more fallout and I think even more to come. So be interesting to see that. But in terms of, in terms of your topic, so you've done seven TEDx talks yep. on this topic with different spins on the topic. Yes. Because so, TEDx talks, talk about a little bit about the rules. You can't have given this talk before. Is that a rule? It is a, it's not a rule. It's a preference of the TEDx committee. They don't want you to come to their TEDx and do something you did at another TEDx. Okay. So, oh, I see. At another TEDx. But yeah. But if you're a professional speaker and you have a talk that's nailed, can you go and give a TEDx on that talk? Yes, up to 18 minutes. 
up to 18 minutes. Okay. And some of the groups aren't fond of professional speakers because a lot of professional speakers figured that was a great way to brand, promote, so forth. Yes. So I'm sure they were flooded with professional speakers, but I don't make any bones about, I don't lie and say, I'm not, you know, whatever. I tell them I'm a professional speaker when I apply. Okay. And it's up to each committee as to whether that's okay or not. Okay. So what would be the advantage for somebody to want, and I already know, most people know what it is, but what is the biggest advantage of a TEDx talk? Is it simply exposure? Three things, visibility, credibility, marketability. But prior to that, it actually dovetails with your idea of picking a lane. The TEDx forces you because it's one idea worth spreading. So when I'm working with my speakers, I say, you have got to pick an idea. And they're not looking at thesis. They want, you know, they want half a dozen learning outcomes or learning objectives and a couple, three action items. So it actually causes my speaker clients to focus on what is their number one passion and then and to do the TED based on that. And then they expand that to a 45-minute keynote. And then we figure out who the ideal client is, who's going to pay them for this. So, it, you know, it helps them pick a lane. Because you cannot, you have to have a lane to do a TEDx. Otherwise, forced. You're forced. And to drill down on one point for 18 minutes is such a good learning process, don't you think? I mean, I think everyone should really do it. Would you say that there's like a part of your speech that could be like your opening story in any 60 minute speech? 18 minutes could be. A TEDx, or because it doesn't have the beginning, the middle, and the ending, kind of the same way. I don't know what. Well, and they'll tell you in the information that you'll read about TEDx, they'll say a story is not a TEDx, and a TEDx is not your story. However, your story is part of a TEDx, and most often it goes like this: the first third of the TEDx, how many ever minutes they give you, is your hero or heroine's journey, as Judy Carter would say, your messes and stresses. Okay. The middle part is, now here's what I learned in all that. And the last part is, and this is what they ask you at the audition, what are you going to teach the audience? From what you learned and what you went through, what are the learning objectives and action items for the audience? So your story is roughly a third. And each TEDx that I did, my origin story is pretty much the same in each one of them. Okay. But there's a different angle. We were talking about Flashpoint. I did one on my flashpoint. And so I gave my background. So they, they take me, you know, as a comedian, that's, a, I always open a keynote with, you're probably wondering, a comedian doing a talk on depression and suicide, how does that work? Yeah. So I go through a little bit of my backstory to give me credibility. Right. And then I jump in, in that case, it was my fourth TEDx talk. It was called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. And the title and subtitle, by the way, were good enough. I didn't have to audition. They said, no, you're on. Oh, really? Interesting. Which told me that that is the key to getting the audition is they get 100 or 200 applications and you're on the selection committee. You're not looking for a reason to give somebody an audition. You're looking for a reason to throw them in the no pile and go to the next one. Right. So when they saw suicide, the secret of my success, which is counterintuitive and dead man talking, which is a play on dead man walking. They're like, okay, man, this is fine. You're on. Yeah. But that was my flashpoint. If I may, at as in your book, where was that? Point is when a speaker's career kind of goes to a new level. Just for those of you who haven't 
refreshed lately on the wealthy speaker. Yeah, and who okay. hasn't? Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> <That's>, uh, well, <laughs> and it was it's rather dramatic, actually. I have major depressive disorder, which is depression, and chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people like me, um, suicide's always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. Okay. My car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's, and by the way, when I speak and tell that story, since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience who has that, has no idea it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak. Yes. And all alone. I'm telling you, people come up to me afterwards crying. You know, I, I thought I was all alone that I heard you say that out loud. The woman said to me and I wept. There's a little ROI for you. Mm. So, and very therapeutic for me as someone who lives with mental illness. So the, um, let's see, where was I? The chronic suicidal. Oh, I know. I'm married to my high school sweetheart. It's January of 84. I'm married to my high school sweetheart, a wonderful woman, but we did not belong together. We had nothing in common, you know, opposites attract. She was pregnant. I wasn't figure, but, and I was selling insurance for her father's company and it's a great business, but it wasn't for me. And I actually had this thought going down highway 163 at five in the afternoon in January of 1984. Why don't you just kill yourself? And I thought, okay, if I don't make a change or changes and start pursuing comedy, going to the open mics where I think I, where I know I belong, I feel like that was what I was born for then I'm going to kill myself sooner rather than later. My second thought was very empowering. Well, I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I can always kill myself. So that was my flashpoint. I mean, imagine someone who has absolutely nothing to lose by trying this. Right. Yeah, I mean, if I stayed put, I was going to die. So You're literally in a dead-end job. Yes, exactly. And it's not uncommon, I believe, for entrepreneurs oftentimes have a very similar thought process. Mm -hmm. They're living a life that they don't think really is theirs with people they don't think they belong with. And they've got this dream. They know they should be doing something else. And if they don't, they're going to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that was my flashpoint. I realized, well, I've got nothing to lose. Fortunately, you know, open mic, it worked out. I've been a full-time stand-up comic for 37 years. I must tell you though, I've thought about writing a keynote called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? Because I had no idea how hard it was to make a living doing stand-up comedy. Well, stand-up comics, I've often, I've known a few of them, obviously, who've crossed over to the light side because it's so hard. It's such a grind. Give us the, just very quickly, and then we need to go into more TED Talk stuff here. Give us the difference between stand-up comedy and the professional speaking circuit. And you, you alluded it to it earlier, but. Yes, it pays a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. And Judy would say, Judy Carter. Yes. And this is why I bought the book. You, Frank, you need to go from funny speaker to speaker who is funny. Keep that skill set, but add content. Right. And the difference again is a good comic who nobody knows who they are could make maybe 250, 300 a night. Okay. So that's what I was after some actual dollars. Yeah. 1,500 a week if they're headlining. And, you know, I make more than that in the first 15 minutes of my keynote. Wow. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just commas and zeros. <laughs> yeah. I tell my clients, look, when I tell them what I think they should be charging as a base, I my clients, I say, look, start at five grand plus travel and then practice in the mirror in the bathroom saying this, 5,000 plus travel, five grand plus travel, 5K plus travel. So it just rolls off your tongue. Yes. You can charge less, but 
quote retail. So that's again why speaking and, and comedy, you know, you're at their club. You're just one of unless you are famous. They didn't come to see you. Yes. When you do a corporate engagement, the committee has selected you. They're paying you a great deal of money to speak. And the audience, you know, you're kind of the star of the show. Yes. And so the accommodations and the travel. <laughs> I mean, I travel in coach, but, you know, I'm at oftentimes a fi- like the Phoenician, some five-star hotel with a you know, free bathrobe or something. Beautiful. Every now and then, I'll take a picture of my room before I put my bags on the bed. And I'll put them on Facebook and I'll say, you know, if you are my age and you're still doing clubs, you may be doing it wrong. Yeah. And maybe the picture is with the Motel 6 next to it. To the Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I recognize that you had to pay your dues, but you did pay your dues and you're here and you're on the circuit. And sometimes you get the red carpet rolled out for you. And I'm sure sometimes not exactly, but let's talk about. You have to apply for a TEDx event. Talk about that. And then how do you score an audition? An audition. Yes, you have to apply. There are application links. However, TED does not make it easy to find them. Okay, bury uh, them. Yes. If you go to, uh, for your audience, go to ted.com okay. forward slash TEDx forward slash events. Okay. And you will find, uh, and you put in the region, US, month let's say February, because there's always a long lead up. And then 2023, you will find all the ones in the U.S. in February. But what you won't find is a link to apply. They make it that extra step, I think, to discourage people. Yes. You really have to. Fire kickers. So how do you find it? Well, you take, let's say it's TEDx Nashville. You copy and paste that into another Google window and you look for TEDx Nashville.com or TEDxNashville.org or their Facebook page, where it's an actual, you know, exactly their site. And oftentimes at their site, they'll say, apply to speak. Here's another trap. Sometimes they'll say, nominate a speaker. And I think they do that because people go, well, who am I get to nominate me? Well, here's something they don't tell you. You can always nominate yourself. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So you're looking for apply or nominate yourself potentially. Yep. And that is, that's very helpful just to know that you can go and look at all the events. That is a very cool. We're going to put that link. Let's say it again, and I'll have Monica put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's ted.com forward slash TEDx forward slash events, plural. And that way you can sort by region and by months. I've got a client in Toronto. So the other day we went looking. And we went to the official page, TEDx.com, forward slash TEDx, forward slash events. And sure enough, there's one in um, May, I think, okay. already come and gone. But we went to the, the Google machine, and there's a TEDxToronto.com. And so I said, look, why don't you do this? Subscribe to their email list so that next year, when the window opens for application, they send you yes. a link to apply. Okay. So anytime you go to a, a TEDx site, an actual website, then I would subscribe okay. to their email list because that way you'll, you'll know when the... And I provide my clients with a list of half dozen, dozen every couple of weeks. I call them and check them out, make sure that the link's still good and make sure that, you know, the window's open for application and they apply. Okay. So you have applied. Will they let you know if you have scored an audition or is there another thing that we can be proactive about auditions? There is a, unfortunately, it's hard to get a no. Oftentimes, you'll never hear back. 
Oh. I think if I were on the selection committee and I know how much work it is to fill out an application and get it in, that I would just send them a, you know, a nice form letter, you know, where we had so many people, you know, and we we're sorry, please apply next year. Yeah. But if you get the audition and there's actually a half step in there, three of my clients this year, this last couple of months, they, uh, sorry about the cat crying in the background, the, <laughs> one of our nine cats, rescue cats. cats going on and we yes. had a parcel delivered to the door. It's a miracle we didn't have dog parking. <laughs> so there you go. This is There you go. Welcome to Zoom. Okay. So, so the half step. Yeah, the half step was they said, look, we like your idea. You stated the problem really well. What you don't have, what we want you to tell us is the how, what you're going to tell them is going to solve that problem. Okay. So they actually gave them a chance to apply essentially again with more how. Right. And they gave, and they gave a couple of links to TEDx talks they thought did a really good job of doing that and which I forwarded to all my clients and said, look, this is kind of what they're looking for. You, you, you know, your story, the problem, but you got to have the how, what's the, yeah. what's the solution. That's really good. Okay. So what is expected of you at an audition? Oftentimes they will say, you've got an audition. Mm -hmm. They'll, oh, well, there is another half step. I'm sorry. Oh. They oftentimes will say, please send us a five minute overview. Usually with the application, they want a 60 to 90 second overview that you did on Zoom. They'll say, let's have a five minute overview. Five minutes, by the way, is 800 words in a comment. Five minutes of your talk? Is that what you're doing? You can do five minutes of your actual talk, okay. which is what I did in Vancouver to get the first one. Or you can do a five minute overview of the talk. So you're just talking about the talk? Yep, you're talking about the talk. Okay. And 160 words per minute is the pace you want. 160 words per minute. So that five minutes is 800 words. Hmm. So I'll ask my clients, you know, write me up a script for five minutes. If it goes over 800 words, don't worry about it. I'll edit it down to 800 words. So there's, it's, and be very careful. If they say five minutes, they don't mean five minutes in one second. They mean five, because if they, if you go over, it may tell them you can't follow directions. Right. And, and you do not want to go over during your actual TEDx talk. Like that is the biggest no-no. It's a no-no on any stage. Yep. Let's just say that for sure. But on the TED or TEDx stage, it's a massive no-no, right? Yes. And TED has three choices with your TEDx. They can post it. They can post it with an editorial note if they disagree with something, or they cannot post it. And I've had three talks not posted, not because I went over. Uh, I'm not sure really why, because they won't tell you and they won't edit it. The best talk I ever gave was in Durango, Colorado. I got a standing ovation. Wow. And they uh, It was called, and again, I didn't have to audition. They liked the title so much. It was yeah. called Mental Health and the Orgasm, Treat Your Depression Single-Handedly. <laughs> and they loved it. And the crowd loved it. It was full of facts about the healthful benefits of, oh, you know, so there was, so there were some, you know, takeaways for the audience about how healthful these things are, lowering your blood pressure, cortisol, you know, uh, prostate cancer, less chance, you know, I mean, it was, it was a lot of stuff in the talk, but a lot of funny, of course. Oh, yes. And, but they, you must've said something that crossed a line. Some, I mean, that one is fraught with danger, wouldn't you say? Yes, I knew that. And they knew that. That's why they put me right before lunch. Cause they said, Frank, we want to have a talk right before lunch that everybody will be talking about at lunch. At and, this is perfect. and that word. Yes. And so what I recommend and what I did on my last one hmm. is I offered the committee, a, I offered to donate a videographer to the event. I was going to hire him. 
and have them record in 4K, a professional videographer, the entire event and turn over the entire raw footage to the committee so that everybody's video on YouTube would be just that much better and I would have a copy. And I can't put it up on YouTube because they would catch that, but I can put it on my Venmo and use it for marketing. So I would recommend, because they have those choices, I would recommend donating a videographer if you're going to do it today. Okay, okay. You get picked, then I'm assuming they're going to give you emails with details on what to expect and how to prepare and things like that. What are some things that people might not know is going to be a directive from? Well, and once you get the, you know, if you do your five minutes and you add the hows and you get the audition, then they do a live Zoom chat with the selection committee. The one question they always ask is, great idea, Jane. Now, what are you going to teach our audience? Second question they always ask. They're terrified of junk science. So if you quote a factor figure, like 60% of college students report self-report anxiety. Okay, Frank, where did that come from? So I have my clients make a list of links if they're going to quote a factor figure, a percentage of whatever. Or if you make a statement, people who meditate live longer. Okay, where did you find that? Okay. And then the local committee will ask you for that. And then before Ted posts it on YouTube, chances are they'll come back and say, let's take a look at those links again making sure that what you quoted is actually something that's legitimate. Now, let's say you lucky enough, they usually select three or four dozen people to audition, and then they select 12 to 15 to actually be on the stage. They assign you a volunteer coach. So the volunteer coach and I and you work on your TEDx to make it as good as absolutely possible. All right. And then, you know, you... And by the way, on many TEDx applications, let's say it was TEDx Toronto and I applied and they asked me, Frank, could you be in Toronto on November 15th for an organizational meeting? I check yes, because I've never actually had to fly to an organizational meeting because they understand you're coming in by Zoom. You live in Oregon. You're not going to be. So, but I think they do that to trip people up. I can't be in Toronto on November 15th. Anything they ask you, check yes. You know, check yes, check yes. Be agreeable and then work it out on the back end. Yes, exactly. Okay. I like that they fact check because I have a big issue with people spreading things that aren't fact checked. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't mind that, that that actually makes the organization, it goes up a level in my eyes. Okay. What kind of speaker or idea may get rejected out of hand? This is uh, the last for- question. And then I want to uh, make sure we'll offer up... Um, We'll make sure that if people want to know how to get in touch with you, they can do that. Well, they are, and this is stated in the boilerplate information that the Big Ted gives the TEDx folks. Mm-hmm. They're not looking. They're not looking for professional speakers. Not yeah. to say they won't book one. Yes. But they, you know, that that could be a red flag for them. They're not looking for motivational speeches or inspirational speeches. Now you get an inspirational story, mm-hmm. but they're not looking for motivational, inspirational, and personal development and if you're doing a TEDx application, I would avoid the word coach okay. altogether. Okay. You know, I would, how, because what, you know, what do you do for a living? I would figure out a way to say it without saying the word coach. Okay. Because every coach and their sister and brother would like to have a TEDx, it seems like. And so they are, you know, again, that leads into personal development. Now, I have speakers who, who do that, and we have gotten them TEDx. The trick is in how you fill out the application, you have to hide the vegetables. 
you have to give them the meat they're looking for and then shove the vegetables underneath so they don't really notice that you're a coach. Blend them up in the blender. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Puree the vegetables so it's all just part of meatloaf. All right. Yes. And may I say this? Most of TEDx companies, coaching companies, and there are good ones, and I've yet to come across one that was a scam, actually. They usually do an Zoom individually, one-on-one, once. And then everything after that is filling out forms and group Zooms. My business model is we do an hour a week on Zoom together, one-on-one, filling out one or two applications each week because it's a bit of a numbers game. Oh, I see. Okay. And I discovered about a year in, Jane, that most of my clients were speakers. And so included in my little package is if you want to use this to up your game in speaking or start your speaking career. We work on the speaker marketing nuts and bolts. You know, do you have a website? Do you have a one pager? Do you have a demo video? Just just to get them turnkey ready for meeting planners. Right. The other TEDx coaching companies, when they get you the TEDx, that's what they do. You know, here's your TEDx. It's up on YouTube. Have a great life. Right. But since I work with speakers, I can't just leave. I can't. And my program, Jane, I call it till death do us part. Okay. Tell me how people can get in touch. What's the best website for them to go to learn more about? how you do your work. It's yourtedxcoach.com. Yourtedxcoach.com. Okay. I said final question earlier, but I'm going to give you one more. When some, what's the best number one quickest way to leverage a TEDx talk? Well, if you have the money, I have a contact who I've used personally, always vet my vendors, Uh who can get you a million legitimate views on YouTube. Now, not many, if any, conversions, but Bragan writes, first line of your bio, his TED Talk got 1 million views. First line of your introduction, his TED Talk got 1 million views. I mean, so it is possible to There's- buy legitimate views from a legitimate company. All right. Second thing is I would put the little TEDx postage stamp with your red letters in the background on your website, and I would make sure that when you do a sizzle reel, that that clip, part of that leads your sizzle reel. So they see the TEDx thing right away. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I think that it definitely adds credibility for people and use three terms, visibility, credibility, and marketability. And I think it's very, very valid. Frank King, thank you so much. You have given us so much juicy and insider information here today. I really, really appreciate it. And just really thank you for being on the show today. Well, Jane, Let's face it, I am as successful as a suicide prevention speaker because I did a Jane Atkinson thing. I picked a lane. Yes, you did. I'm very, very happy that has paid off for you, Frank. And those of you who haven't really quite yet done that, I'm hoping that this is a good testimonial towards doing it. And I also hope that you'll go out and get a TEDx talk because it really does help you start to bring your ideas into focus and niche and niche. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for listening in. And with that, we will say, see you soon. wealthy speakers. Bye for now, everyone. Thanks for listening to the wealthy speaker podcast. If you need help building the speaking business of your dreams, head over to wealthyspeakerschool.com and take advantage of our 20-minute next-step call. Thanks for listening to the Wealthy Speaker Podcast.